This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. Many people believe that the Bible is nothing more than a collection of isolated stories disconnected from each other, sort of a collection of Aesop's fables that have a moral at the end. But in reality, the Bible is a single, unified story whose emphasis is about what God has done in and through Jesus Christ. And what's so amazing about this single, unified story is that it was written over the course of over 1,400 years by more than 40 authors. Now, the only way it's possible to have a single, unified story written over the course of over 1,400 years by more than 40 authors is if God is at the helm. Now, before I show you some specifics, I want to show you how the Bible itself tells us that it's a single, unified story. There are numerous passages that outline that, but let me just mention two. First is John chapter 1, verse 45. We read there, Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Moses wrote about Jesus in the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Moses wrote about Jesus there. The prophets wrote about Jesus. Jesus himself, when he's with his disciples after his resurrection, this is what we read there. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The Bible is not a collection of isolated stories. It's a single, unified story, ultimately about Jesus Christ. I'm going to take seven Old Testament stories, famous Old Testament stories, and do with them what Jesus may have done with them when he explained to the disciples that they are ultimately about him. And my intent here isn't simply to present biblical truth that's interesting to think about. My prayer is that the Holy Spirit would use the scriptures to increase our love for and awe of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So let's look at it. Adam and Eve. Everybody knows the story of Adam and Eve. Remember the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3? Satan slithers his way into there and starts whispering into their ears these plans, these grandiose plans to disregard God's command about the tree to defy his will, to impose their will on God. And Adam and Eve bit on it. 
When faced with the temptation in the garden, they, they failed miserably. And their failure brought about expulsion from the dwelling place of God. And as a natural consequence of not having access to the dwelling place of God, it brought death. Well, this scene prefigures a scene recorded much later in the Gospels. Do you know Jesus also faced temptation in a garden? Jesus faced temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane. He faced a similar kind of temptation to that of Adam and Eve. The temptation to impose his will on the Father's will. The temptation to abandon the way the Father had orchestrated things to work out. To abandon that and to instead enact his own plan. But unlike Adam and Eve, Jesus repelled the temptation through prayer when he prayed Not my will, but yours be done. What Adam and Eve failed to do, Jesus did. And as a result, Jesus' success brings us back into God's presence. It brings life. So Adam and Eve's failure in the garden serves as a foil and also anticipates, points forward to Jesus' success in the garden. Adam and Eve's failure in the garden brings us death. Jesus' success in the garden brings us life. The Bible is not a collection of isolated stories, but a single unified story ultimately about Jesus Christ. How about Noah and the flood? Everybody remembers that one. But what precipitates the flood? Well, we read in Genesis, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. So God sees that the world is filled with evil, and the flood is God's judgment of human sin. Just like death was the consequence for Adam and Eve's sin, so it is for all sin. So where does Noah fit in this bleak assessment of the human condition? Well, we read in Genesis 6, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. God then commands Noah to build an ark. He follows those instructions to a T. And then we read this. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you, Noah, righteous in this generation. God explicitly says that he's found Noah righteous. Noah's family is the beneficiary of his righteousness. They get to board the boat because of Noah's righteousness. Noah's righteousness shields them from God's judgment to come. This story of Noah prefigures the story of God's judgment to come. There's yet a greater judgment. It's not going to come in the form of a literal flood. It's a form of judgment that will last into eternity. See, Jesus is the true and better Noah. Just like Noah's righteousness shielded his family from God's judgment, Jesus' righteousness will shield his family from God's judgment yet to come. So the question comes to us, are you part of his family? 
Are you on the boat? The Bible is not a collection of isolated stories, but a single unified story ultimately about Jesus Christ. Abraham and Isaac. Later in Abraham's life, after a decades-long battle with infertility, God blessed Abraham and his wife Sarah with a son, Isaac. But God tested Abraham's loyalty by instructing Abraham to sacrifice his only son on an altar. And just as Abraham was about to plunge the dagger into the soft flesh of his boy, God stopped him and said, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. In the very next verse, we read this. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket, he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. To our Heavenly Father is the true and better Abraham, who was not asked to sacrifice his only son, but willingly on his own initiative sent him to be a sacrifice for us. And when the hammers were raised to plunge the nails into his son's hands and feet, no verbal command to cease ever came. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who willingly laid down his life on the altar with no ram to serve as his substitute. Jesus is the ram. Jesus himself is our substitute. The Bible's not a collection of isolated stories but a single unified story ultimately about Jesus Christ. How about Joseph? Joseph was betrayed by his brothers. You know this story. He was betrayed by his brothers. He was sold as a slave into a foreign land. And years later, Joseph finds himself sitting at the right hand of the king of Egypt, second in command of that nation with incredible power to wield as he sees fit. On a seemingly regular day, who comes walking through the palace doors but his brothers, begging him to save them from a life-threatening famine. Now, even though Joseph had every right to, at that point, enact justice against them for the crime they committed against him, he gives them mercy. He gives them grace. He provides for them. See, Jesus is the true and better Joseph who sits at the right hand of the Almighty King. We are his betrayers. We are the ones who drove the nails into his hands and feet. It is we who beg for his mercy to preserve our lives. And even though he has every right to exercise justice against us for running him out of our lives because of our preference for other things, Jesus gives us grace. The Bible is not a collection of isolated stories but a single unified story ultimately about Jesus Christ. Well, Joseph and his brothers marry and have children and their children have children and their children have children and so on until they become a great nation, Israel. So great have their numbers become that the king of Egypt is threatened by this. And so he enslaves them in forced labor, in forced brutality, oppression. God sees the injustice that his people have to endure and he has compassion on them. He attempts to convince the king of Egypt to let his people go free through a series of judgments, frogs, gnats, flies, painful boils. But God's climactic judgment is the angel of death sent to kill the firstborn in every household. But before God unleashes this, he instructs the people of Israel 
to take a lamb, sacrifice it, and put its blood on the door frames of their homes. That night, when the angel of death swept through Egypt and spotted the blood on the door frame, he passed over that household, sparing the firstborn inside. See, Jesus is the true and better Passover lamb. Those who hide behind his blood will be spared. Are you covered by the blood of the lamb? Do you trust in the blood of the lamb? The Bible is not a collection of isolated stories, but a single unified story ultimately about Jesus Christ. How about Job? Job is one of the most widely read stories in all the world even to this day. I read it in my secular literature humanities class at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. Now you know the story. Job's a very godly man whom God himself speaks highly of. God permits Satan to ravage his life. Once wealthy, he becomes impoverished. He loses everything. Once blessed with 10 children, all 10 are taken from him in death. Though innocent, Job remains loyal. He remains obedient and trusting in his God. He holds on to God even in the darkest times. And at the end of the story, God blesses Job with twice as much as he had before. Jesus is the true and better Job. Though infinitely innocent, Jesus suffers for your sin and mine, losing the love of his Father. Though he was rich for our sake, he became poor. And through it all, he never flinches. Through it all, he never throws in the towel. Through it all, he remains steadfast in his love for his Father. And at the end of the story, not only is Jesus' wealth and blessing multiplied one day, he will lavish with wealth and blessing those who have chosen to follow him. The Bible is not a collection of isolated stories, but a single unified story ultimately about Jesus Christ. One more. Perhaps the most famous biblical story of all time is David and Goliath. So many people understand this story to be a call for us to trust God in the face of the giants. If you just trust God in the face of your giants, you too will come out victorious. Sadly, there are countless examples of those who have not come out victorious. So if David and Goliath is ultimately about Jesus, we probably read this story a bit differently, don't we? David, he's an unlikely hero, small in stature, not military trained, a shepherd boy. He's offended by the mocking taunts of the giant Philistine warrior Goliath. So in an incredible display of courage, David takes on and defeats the giant, giving hope and life to an entire nation. He's Israel's representational fighter and victor. 
Jesus is the true and better David. Born in a stable on the outskirts of a rural village and raised as a carpenter, he hardly had the reputation of being a societal elite. He wasn't a cultural trendsetter. Conventional wisdom labeled him a nobody. But he took on and defeated the ultimate giant. Not a warrior with a sword, but death with the teeth of eternal separation from God and everything that's good. In defeating that giant, Jesus has given greater hope for a better life to millions of people across hundreds of generations and nations. See, the Bible is not a collection of isolated stories, but a single unified story ultimately about Jesus Christ. It's good news about what God has done It's good news that is meant, as we just sang, to get us to stand in awe of the one who gave it all. Before we partake of the Lord's Supper, I want to give us some space. Because there might be some things in our lives that we need to address. I have a feeling that each day we engage in a war. There's a battle. And the battle is for your supreme affection. What gets it? Every day this battle rages. And likely every day we fall short. Jesus does not get our supreme affection. The beautiful thing about this is that there is no end to the crosswork of Christ. There is no end to the grace, the forgiveness, the mercy that bled out his veins. So let's take some time. Before we come to the table, let's take some time. And let's confess some things to him. Would you bow your heads? Close your eyes. Our God is faithful. He's just. He promises forgiveness. Take some time to confess before him.
Jesus, the symmetry and unity and variety of the ways in which the scriptures paint a portrait of your life is astounding. And yet I am so prone to finding other things, other topics, other ideas, other people, other events more alluring. My heart is fickle. It's prone to wander. It's susceptible to attaching itself to other loves. But Jesus, I'm in awe that you would dress me in your righteousness. That you would lay yourself down on the altar to serve as my Passover lamb. As we participate in this table, I pray our affections for you would swell and our allegiance to you deepen so that through your people, you and all you have accomplished would be made much of. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.